Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Well, welcome everybody to the Equip Cast. My name is Jim Janton. I'm the uh, Director of Pastoral Services here for the Archdiocese of Omaha. And uh, so excited you are here joining us today with me, my co-host, as always, Father Jeff Lorig. Father, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm not always your co-host because the last couple times I got pushed to the sideline, but uh, that's okay. That... They were really good episodes. With oh, okay. Well, yeah. Bishop Lucas. I mean, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of a big deal. That's, that's true. That's true. If you're going to get bumped, you got bumped by the best. Uh, hey, how are things in Midtown? Things are just fine here at St. Thomas More and St. Joan of Arc. We're uh, just gearing up for some Thanksgiving um, celebrations and then already doing some Christmas planning. You got to get all that stuff squared away before you jump into it. Everybody wants to know. Everybody's that's right. I need to get you my wish list for Christmas. No, that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking oh, about okay, like no. Christmas masses and you got to get your confession scheduled. There's a lot of maintenance stuff you have to do around here. Hey, I know you guys are working on a cool event for Thanksgiving that Thomas Moore and Joan of Arc will be doing. Could you t- just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't know if it's a unique, but the event is primarily geared towards helping parishioners feel equipped to invite non-churchgoers to an event, to church. So if somebody goes to Joan of Arc or they go to Thomas More. This is to help them have something that they can invite their non-churchy neighbors to. Non-churchy neighbors and family members. So it's not a mass. We all have non-churchy family members, which we're going to be forced to eat turkey and stuffing with. (laughs) Right. So it's just, it's something, it's basically an opportunity to give thanks. It's an opportunity to gather even with COVID, you know, because COVID makes kind of things a little bit harder, but it's to gather, to give thanks and, and to give. So there's a little charitable drive going on, you know, pick, pick a charity, our ladies guild, they call them wings, women in God's service. They chose a couple of charities here in town. So they're going to help out with hospitality and they're going to choose St. Vincent de Paul and, and the Bethlehem house. So it's basically an opportunity for somebody to, to just to gather together, to give thanks to God and to give back. And so we're calling it 3G, the back to basics sort of. Oh, G, uh, one G is gratitude. What are the other two Gs? Give. Give. And gather. Gather. Gratitude, give, gather. Yeah, so nice. kind of a corny name, but the Wings Gals, they kind of liked it. So the 3G event is just a back to basics prayer service that's really easy to invite somebody. So it's not going to be overly Catholic and there's not going to be a lot of Catholic ease going right. on. No, if you're not Catholic, you're not going to be lost there. It's, it's really geared towards just helping people feel comfortable there and then really helping parishioners feel comfortable inviting them to it. They will not be embarrassed. They won't be like, oh my gosh, well, I, Father talked about abortion at the Thanksgiving thing. Like, you know, we're not going to do that. It's just going to be an opportunity. <laughs> my crazy liberal aunt is never coming back. Just to take a moment. Everybody needs a moment to give thanks. We always talk about giving thanks on Thanksgiving. But nobody yeah. really, I'm not sure many people really like take a moment to pause and to think of how blessed we are and then give that back to whoever you need to give it back to, to give that gratitude to whoever you need to give it, whether it's the universe, mother nature, or your higher power, or Jesus Christ himself, God, your father, Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. It's just an opportunity for someone, for anybody to come and just give thanks to God. 
and to, and yeah. to give back. Like we've, many of us have been doing okay during COVID, but there's a lot of people who aren't. And so it's an opportunity for us to say like, yeah, I've been blessed. I'm going to share my blessings with somebody else. And I think that's, that's something that's universal that can cross mm-hmm. a lot of denomination lines. And even if you're an atheist, I think you can get on board with that. So, well, and it's kind of sneaky spiritually. I mean, I'm just thinking like, right, if you can, wherever someone is at in their personal faith journey, if you can get them to begin to give thanks, even if the, that thanks isn't being directed to the person of Jesus, I mean, you know, St. Ignatius would say like, man, gratitude is one of those fundamental first movements of the heart that opens us up to other grace. So it's sneaky. You're, you're, you're drawing people close to God, even if they just think they're being kind. Right. And you can put, I mean, any parish can put on events. I mean, we do, we cannot rely on events. I mean, we do have to have some other ways in which we help people to encounter Jesus. So a big part of this is really, it's gearing the parish up for being able to invite somebody else. So the homilies this month have all been about like, how can we share the Beatitudes with somebody else? How can we introduce, like on All Saints we talked about, like none of the saints became saints by themselves. Somebody mm-hmm. introduced Jesus to them. And so, so, so you kind of start there and then in the homily we say like, who will we introduce Jesus to in the next month? And then later on this month, one of the homilies will be about, I want you to think about three people right here in your neighborhood, in your family that you could maybe begin to pray for and perhaps invite to an event, particularly this event. So we'll gear them up. I think this weekend or actually next weekend, we'll be planting that seed. Well, not just planting the seed. We're going to tell, we're going to, that's going to be the homily. And we're equipping the parishioners in the pews to be able to, to invite them to this event. They're going to be evangelizers, whether they know it or not. All right. Well, hey, let's make a mental note to talk about how it went after Thanksgiving, you know, maybe one of our December podcasts. Thanks for, thanks for sharing about that. Okay. So we're talking today, talking about vision, which we tend to talk about a lot, but I think from, from a different perspective, some context here, the big goal, you know, Archbishop Lucas was able to kind of announce it on the EquipCast. It was announced at a pastoral conference, but it's, it's new to the majority of the diocese. But the goal itself and the key characteristics, you know, collaborative leadership, establishing a clear path of discipleship in your parish, culture of generosity, those things have been banging around our hearts and minds for quite a while. We've had a long time to kind of think and wrestle with these ideas and implement them and test them and refine them. And for those who are, again, all of our leaders in some way, shape or form are leaders, whether you have a position in your parish community in your school or not, you know, if, if you have any influence whatsoever, you're a leader. Leaders often find themselves in this place where they've experienced something about where they need to go and now they need to bring others along. And we had some friends here that, that told us like, okay, you guys need to talk about this experience because we tend to have spent a lot of time thinking about things. And now, at least for me, new role here and now you kind of new pastor, we're beginning to talk about some things that we've been living and thinking about and praying about and wrestling with for years. Now we're introducing them to the people for the first time. And I'm at least finding it very challenging to let myself go back to the beginning and, and to not make assumptions about just, or just to make, I guess, some of the assumptions that I have to begin to make those things explicit and to really share vision well. You know, I've been doing this since I first read Father Mallon's book. Probably even before that, I read Sherry Waddell's book, Forming Intentional Disciples, and just felt that 
ache in my heart, like, oh my gosh, we need to, like, that's it. We need to form disciples. That's why we exist. And uh, so that was, was put on my heart a long time ago, whenever that came out, like I was back in Crete, Nebraska, uh, St. Ledger's. And so I've been reading voraciously since then, quite honestly. How many years? 2013. I mean, even in 2012, when I went to St. St. Ledger, that first year I knew religious ed was broken and I wanted to, I want to just cancel it for the year. <laughs> so, so this is, so this is like an eight year journey, eight, yeah. seven, six, at least talk about that. I mean, because I think that's my goodness, like the, the time that it takes for these visions and convictions to kind of develop. If you can remember a little bit, because I think part of the challenge for us as leaders is to remember where we were at, our thought process, and, and the journey we had to go through. What other things, you mentioned forming intentional disciples, divine renovation. Take us back a little bit, like at the starting point. What were your thought processes, your desires, the things that, as you were first kind of setting out on this journey? Yeah, I came from St. Elizabeth Ann before I went out into the country. And there was an awesome youth group there. It was a life team group. And then they, they went into become the overflow group and there were adults participating, you know, young adults, part of the core team. And then teens were becoming seminarians, like lots of them were becoming mm. seminarians. And there was a men's group after youth group. There was a, they called it St. Joe's army. So it's like some of our priests day, like Father Meshach and Father Sund. I'm not going to get everybody's name, but like, like those guys were part of that St. Joe's army. Yeah. Uh, that that met and and so I kind of had this like I had this sense of like it is possible for people to become disciples today and I often talk with Danny Ledger quite a bit who's yeah. with the Hope for the Poor we work together as, with youth ministry and so I just I knew there was something possible and I knew you could form disciples and then when I went into St. Patrick's and O'Neill just noticing that really wanting to get kids to go to Steubenville there at St. Mary's school, just mm-hmm. knowing that all they needed to do is encounter Jesus. Like they just needed to get a little, get a little Holy ghost in them and like, mm-hmm. and all kinds of amazing things can happen in their lives. Did you take kids to the Steubenville trip? Were you able yeah, to go absolutely. with them on that? Yeah. We went from, you know, zero to 50 pretty quickly. You know, we had, we had some good leaders and some good families and a lot of good work had already been done there in that parish, but it was, yeah, if you just cast a vision and then invite kids to something and you get a couple of those good leaders, I mean, it was work. Don't get me wrong. It was yeah. a lot of begging. and But it's cool. I mean, I hear what you're saying. You had this experience of seeing the church alive in youth ministry, which is very similar to my own experience in campus ministry. You saw like, hey, wait a minute. It's possible. It works. And those memories provided a, a hope that seemed to fuel you as you started to kind of scratch your head about like, okay, what can we do about religious ed? What can we do about adults and the rest of the parish? Yeah. And so then when I finally got became a pastor in Creighton, I was really, I hit a wall. I'm like, why? Ugh, now it's up to me. I don't know what to do. I don't have the same leaders. I don't, we don't have the vision. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unfortunately, you know, St. Ledger's had been through a little bit. The rectory burned down a few years before. They kind of felt like they were the redheaded stepchildren of the diocese that the bishop didn't like them. So there was a lot of darkness going on there. Mm-hmm. Just something heavy. Kind of felt like, ah, I don't know what to do. And then you get into religious ed and, you know, it's two days before religious ed starts and you don't have teachers. And like, you know, I had one person who had religious ed coordinator that quit. Actually, they all, I had three of them like my first month there. 
they're just like, well, I think it's time to move on to some new leadership. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? So you kind of in this place of helplessness and, and not hopelessness, but I'd had a little hopelessness. In that place, I started talking to other parishioners who wanted more for the parish. And I would say that was really formative. I don't know if I was forming them as mm. much as they were forming me. And I think getting good people around you that share some zeal, share a love for Jesus, share a love for the church, that was really good for me as a, as a priest. Like, oh, I'm not alone. And it wasn't a formal leadership team or anything like that. It was just good people and just start finding those people. And I'm finding that here at, at St. Joan of Arc and St. Thomas More is like, they're starting to come out of the woodwork. You begin to notice like, oh, you want the same thing I do. And mm-hmm. Uh, and then those are the people you want to keep developing relationships with and then finding, in fact, I just, I just came from a meeting where somebody w- was talking about, oh, I really want to help young families get started. And I was like, Oh, would you want to help out with baptism prep? And she's like, yeah, we'd love to do that. I'm like, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's a lot of that just to, yeah, to go to back to the, to the beginning. That's right. The thought process was, I know we can do so much better because I saw it happen. I saw it at St. Patrick's and St. Mary's and O'Neill, and I saw it happen at St. Elizabeth Ann. Adults and young people were committing their lives to Jesus and wanting to live an adventurous life with him as their as disciples. So I just knew the gospel still worked. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's as you talk about this, I'm reminded a little bit of my own story, different but some rhymes, and I think I've maybe talked kind of around this or a little bit, you know, times on the podcast before. But you know, when I was doing campus ministry, like most renewal in the church, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was very catechetical and kind of had a little bit of the apologetics movement, you know, culture in it. And what a couple of things happened. I mean, that was fruitful. It was a beautiful thing. There were so many people whose lives were dramatically impacted where they loved the Lord and they just needed some obstacles removed, thought obstacles. They needed some solid formation in the faith. And then they really began to grow as disciples. But what I started to notice is I had some peers, other missionaries that were on other campuses and they had better stories than I did. They had stories of people that were like, live in this crazy rock star partying lifestyle and God was intervening in their life, changing their life dramatically. And I didn't have those stories. I had good kids that wanted to be good kids and they became better kids, but I wasn't seeing lives totally transformed. And I kind of had a little bit, you know, competitions in my top five for Gallup Strings Finder. I, I had kind of a holy jealousy and it was that paired with, an experience in in my master's program where I started to encounter what the church was really teaching about evangelization in the general directory of catechesis in, you know, Redemptorius Missio and all sorts of different writings, particularly of John Paul II, where he talked about the importance of the initial proclamation and evangelization. And I just realized like that wasn't what I was doing. That wasn't where I was at. It's interesting because later I did develop these convictions because I saw it in other people and the writings of the church and the magisterial teachings were making an impact on me. And I got really frustrated as a leader trying to bring other people along because I didn't go back to draw them to the desire. I just immediately is like, okay, we should do this. And I didn't take the time to draw them into the teaching of the church and to help make the, the call I was experiencing, which was at its base, very personal, 
thinking about individuals and students that I knew that were going unreached. I didn't, I didn't take the time to do that. We've talked about this before, Father. You know, there's a, there's a, a change theory called ADCAR, um, A-D-K-A-R, and it's an acronym, but the first two, awareness and desire, those are kind of fundamentals for beginning to introduce people to change. My mistake was I jumped right away into trying to train people and get people to do something. And there was no awareness that this is what the church was asking for. And there wasn't any desire. There was no personal motivation because I kind of skipped directly to trying to train people and get them to do something before I actually captured their hearts and their minds. Yeah. And I think that awareness part, you have to answer certain questions. If you're going to help people become aware of a change that needs to happen, if you're going to help them come along, you have to answer why, why now, and what's at risk if we don't do it. If you can't answer those things, then, mm-hmm. then you might as well just go back home. <laughs> right. Well, and that's what I heard you saying as you talk about your role for, in pastoral planning. You would use the data. You'd use parish statistics showing the decline in mass attendance, the decline in baptisms and weddings. And you, you showed that to help raise awareness. Yeah. And then to say, because it's the commission. Jesus has a heart for the lost. Jesus has a heart for us and he weeps for us. Like he sees how much sin damages the world and, and how much hell has its way with us. And, and, he, and he's given us all the tools, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth through the church. Wherever Jesus is claimed as king, then the kingdom of God prevails. So the kingdom of God is very near. So if you can just help people to recognize that's the why is just because it's what Jesus wants. (laughs) So uh, it's what he commissioned us to do. That's the mission. So really what we're talking about here is how do you as a leader, if you find yourself way ahead in this process of developing a vision and a conviction, how do you go back to the beginning and help other leaders join you on the journey, right? How, how do you run with the people that you're supposed to be leading and accompanying and bring them along in the journey? So I think we got a couple thoughts here, but Father, what would you say? First, first yeah. thing. Well, I think first thing that you can't do is get everybody to read the same books you read in the last eight years yeah. uh, or go to the oh. same conferences. <laughs> yeah. That's All possible. you have to do is uh, it's just, just read these 20 books. Yeah. No, that's a, Thank you. That's a good point because not that books don't have a, a role, but I think what we're talking about is how do I condense the one-year, six-year, eight-year journey that I've been on? How do I condense that process? Not artificially, but how do I bring people along in some time period other than eight years? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I know how to do is begin to show them the fruit of conversion, like show them the end result. Like there's already the desire. They want to see their parish get younger and larger and they want to get more young people involved and engaged. And then you say, okay, here's how I think we could do it. We can help people encounter Jesus or be filled with the Holy Spirit through Alpha. And we begin to reach out and bring those people in. And I promise you, look, Alpha is not a, like a magic program or anything like that. It is the moment of the Holy Spirit weekend where people open their hearts to the Holy Spirit. And then that's where things happen. Yeah, Alpha is not a silver bullet, but the Holy Spirit is. Holy Spirit works every time if people are open to it. I mean, I just did my Holy Spirit weekend 
online virtually and we all had our, our hands open. We were all praying for one another deeply in deep Holy Spirit prayer. And it was a very powerful moment. And, and so I, I, I think you just have to trust that the Holy Spirit still works, still wants to be in the hearts of, of, of people. And so if people are willing to take him on and let him be stirred up in them, then, then you're going to see some fruit. So for me, it's just, I want to, what we did here at St. Thomas More was, we had people give testimony of their lives being transformed through the church, through the gospel, through an encounter with Jesus. So, so we had people get up after mass and give testimony of either RCIA or what they've received in alpha and how right. they went from like not attending church or living a certain way to now my life is all about God. And I want to do everything I can to bring others into that as well. Like, Every church member, everybody in the pew wants that. So if you say, this is what we're going to do, and you testify to that, give witness to it, then it's not that hard to get people on board because they see the fruits. Right. Well, I mean, what you're talking about is people have to hear more than a theoretical or a strategic outline of a plan. They, they have to have some experience, either in the form of testimonies or personally to cast vision, to bring people along on a, a journey, it has to be experiential. I think that was my biggest desire to, to leave the chancery and to get back into parish life is because I could sit there and talk about it all day long. You know, oh, did you hear what Father Malin wrote on Twitter? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like, oh, this is like great stuff. Or like, here's what this pastor said. And, but it, it's kind of meaningless unless you actually are, you just do it. And maybe you can show some other pastors and how to do it. Or maybe, I, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about because, you know, the, I, the frustration is there's a lot of maintenance that goes on. There's funerals to do. There's questions to answer. There's finance councils to, to take care of things. So it's, I think it was important for me to just say like, I'm, I'm going to put these theories to the test. And, and then Thankfully, you know, there are transformed lives here at both parishes mm -hmm. where, where Jesus is doing amazing things in people's lives. And so if you just show them that fruit, then oftentimes they'll say, we want more of that. So culture, as we always say, culture is created by what you celebrate and by what you tolerate. Mm -hmm. And so if you begin to celebrate transformed lives, then they'll say, we want more, more, more of that, Father, and say, okay, here's how I think we can make more. Let's make yeah. some changes here. Let's do a little bit of that. And if you keep focused on the end result, on the finish line, you might have to go back to the beginning line to walk with them, but tell them what the goal is. Like, we just want people to know yeah. Jesus. Well, and more than tell, show them show stories, them. testimonies, come and see. I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I mean, this is, this is my story. I shared earlier, you know, when I was, became convicted of the importance as a college missionary of explicitly proclaiming the gospel and not simply trying to form and catechize people who were already Christians. I would jabber at people and talk and conjole and try and convince, and I'm a natural persuader. And what finally did it was I just made them go share the gospel. You know, we did some kind of silly exercises walking on campus and talking to strangers, which is not the typical relational outreach we did. But every time we did it, God showed up. And not to say that people are like, oh my God, please, I'd like to be baptized right now. What is the way? Where's the, I see water. What is to prevent me? It's not like that <laughs> happened every time. But every time we went out with an explicit intention to share the gospel, 
we ran into people who were lapsed Catholics, who were, I mean, just that it was so clear that God was present in these conversations and something always happened. And that, that experience convicted them way more than simply my words. So I think, I think one of our biggest pieces of advice here is if you're a leader and you're trying to help people grasp a vision, don't just tell them, show them and invite them into an experience of, of the destination that you have in mind. And keep your eye on the finish line. If you have to go back to, with them at the start line, keep them focused on, on the end line. Cause it'll be, it's easy for people to get caught up in the, the fundraisers and the festivals and my preferences you know, for mass times and music and whatnot. But if you say, well, what's, what's the I remember goal? Father Malin got rid of the bulletin at his parish. <gasps> oh my gosh, the sacred bulletin. Yeah. And people were kind of upset with him. And, and so he, he tells the story of one of the ladies kind of getting mad at him after mass and his, his actually his leadership team. I can't believe him. that must be just Canada. I can't believe someone would get mad at their, their priest. Father, how come we don't have the bulletin anymore? Why do we've got the, why do we, so they created like a, a, a monthly magazine called the Benedictus, right? The, the good, the good news. That right? sounds, that sounds Catholic Latin and trendy at the same time. Yeah. Benedictus. And she just, she said something like, well, I don't like this. And Father Mallon just said, it's not for you. It's for those who have never been to our church. He, he painted the picture of the finish line. The finish line is for more people to reach, to, to more people that we want to reach more people, more people mm-hmm. that encounter Jesus. And so she just needed to kind of be reminded of the church does not exist just for you. It exists mm-hmm. for the lost as well. And so we are, we are shifting things to be more attractive uh, or at least help people who are outside the church to take next steps to get in. I love what you're saying here, Father. I mean, a lot of this, I, I'm reminded... You know, Patrick Lencioni, who is a very faithful Catholic man, you know, kind of a business leadership guru in many of his books, but the advantage is the one that's coming to mind. He talks about like, okay, key task for leaders. First, you need to help like achieve clarity for the organization and for the individuals. Like, where are we going? What are we doing? And then it's like, and then we're like, okay, what next? He's like, reinforce clarity and then reinforce clarity again. I mean, I know again, in missionary life, we talk about like, the gospel is so counterintuitive. People have to hear it seven times before they really start to comprehend it. And in similar fashion, the vision and the culture shifts that the spirit and, you know, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, like the culture shifts and the, the shifts in pastoral methodology that are being asked of us they're enough of a paradigm shift that they have to be repeated again and again and again for people to get it. And part of what, you know, Patrick Lencioni and other good leaders talk about is that as a leader, you have to say it again and again and again, way beyond when you're sick of hearing it. You know, yeah. like you're done and you're like, oh, I said it. And that's my been experience lately. I'm like, I said this five times. And I realized I said it to five different audiences and I need to say it. I need to say it five, seven, 10 times to the same people. Mm-hmm. I, I think also I come in with a lot of assumptions that I think everybody else knows too. 
How do you make those explicit? Because I've been running into that all the time in the last couple of weeks. How do you make those assumptions explicit? I mean, I'm just, I'm just blessed to be around good people like Whitney, the producer and others who say, what do you mean? Why do you say that? And then I kind of wrinkle my nose. I'm like, Wait, maybe, you know, because they're, they're poking at an assumption that of course I've assumed, but I, I'm, I'm blessed to have people around me who ask the question and expose the assumptions so I can make them explicit. But is there anything that a leader can do other than surround themselves with good people who ask tough questions? Well, you obviously have to be aware of your assumptions, but you know, what are you assuming in this situation? You know, when you assume blah, 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 you know the phrase, but that's probably what I have experienced coming into a lot of meetings and whatnot. And when we talk about, we want to be an invitational church. Okay, that Mm -hmm. sounds great, Father. Why? Well, yeah, because um, because, because people aren't because that's to our call. <laughs> yeah, cause, yeah, because well, people and, aren't coming to church. Really, and, I think and yeah, that, and people don't know that. And I think the biggest Sometimes. one I probably hold on to, or not hold on to, but I that I really assume, and it becomes clear to me every day. And I don't think it's becoming clearer, or they haven't made that that leap. It's that we no longer live in a Christian era. This is not the Christendom anymore. We live mm-hmm. in an apostolic era. We live in a post-Christian era. You just have to assume, assume that m- many people that are actually in your pews are unchurched. Actually, I, right now, the people who are coming to church are pr- fairly churched because they don't have to be there. But uh, right. every pastor listening to this during COVID knows that their average attendance is probably 40 to 50% of where it was a year ago. Yeah. And, and a lot of those people can be at mass. They just choose not to be there because, you know, now they don't have to go. And it was even, you know, it wasn't that great before COVID. And Mm -hmm. so why aren't people coming to mass? Well, because. Because they don't want to. This is a post-Christian era. It's a, it's a Catholic culture. Christopher West used the phrase. We now live in a Catholic non-Christian culture. (laughs) And and this, this sense of just like a lot, we have a lot of Catholics by culture. And I feel that down here in South Omaha and Midtown where it's just like, no, this is what we do. Why wouldn't I have my, my kid baptized? And, you know, and so when I, I just did a baptism class the other day, like, why do you want your kid baptized? Well, that's just what you do. So, yeah, it's, that's well, my family. That's, that's what we've always done. Right. And that used to be enough in a Christendom culture when the culture supports the living out of faith. That was enough, but it's not, it, it, you know I mean? We can't, the culture is now unhelpful and the culture cannot make up for a lack of conviction the way it may have in generations past. Yeah, so you have to do a lot of charisma. Uh, you have to share, proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and and what what happens in baptism, and and why the Father wants to pour Himself out over us, uh, and make us His children, and and what that means to us in this in this journey that we're on as human beings. That it's so easy to feel lost, and so you just you can continue like this is why we do baptism because we become children and we're not orphans anymore in a world that feels kind of harsh. Yeah. So that's that's the charisma. So if we're going to take the people that we're leading back, we're like, okay, it's got to be experiential, right? That they, they need to taste the fruit, the experience of the end zones, the, what we're, the finish line that we're pursuing, stories, personal experiences of that, that they need to be made aware in an experiential way. We need to, to make our assumptions explicit. We need to keep repeating again and again and again seven times or more beyond when we're sick of hearing it, 
I think maybe another kind of a pro tip here for, for leaders, like how do you know when you finally shared it enough, when you shared enough vision? I think it's when you get to the point where your people start finishing your sentences, where you have communicated it so clearly and so consistently that you know, you're just starting in. It's like, okay, our family exists for this neighborhood. And they're like, and everybody here who doesn't know Jesus, and they begin to finish our, our sentences. I think that's the test is when we can finally stop. Uh, that, and I think when people take initiative. You know, sure. When, when, when they do it, you start to see the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, you know, some people say, well, why don't we just start our own small group? Well, can't we just start our own Bible? Why do we sit around and wait for father to teach us? Like there's plenty of good content out there. So I think we're beginning to see that when people just take that initiative um, and then they feel like they have permission to do it. Yeah. Okay. So if you're a leader and you've been blessed, the Lord has put a vision and a conviction on your heart. And now you're frustrated because it doesn't, because you're like, but I told everybody, we, we, we had this conversation last week. Got to go back to the beginning. Remember where you fell in love, how the Lord inspired your conviction and, and give people some of those shared experiences, you know, never tire of repeating it until they begin to repeat it for you. What else did we say here? Yeah, don't forget your why. Don't forget the like the why. Oh yeah, and and the assumptions. Make those explicit. Why are we doing this? And when you do hit a roadblock with people, probably more likely yeah. you went to the conclusion without going through the premises. And then you're you're just making that as an assumption that everybody else knows. So make sure you go back because that's what I felt in a few of my conversations and my meetings of mm. like it wasn't going forward quickly enough. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, let's draw back here and say, what am I assuming that they don't know about? Any final encouragement here for leaders who find themselves coming back to the beginning and inviting others along the same journey? Yeah, I would just say, don't be afraid to try to move things forward. And when you do, you're going to begin to understand where other people are coming from. So once you say, why don't we do mass this way? Or why don't we have more of a contemporary music mass or why don't we do a hospitality like whatever your idea is like try it and then get some people around you and when they start asking the tough questions then you can begin to refine you know the desire like why are we doing this why would you want to do that and i think that's a great way to refine your vision is by sharing with a few people that you trust that will Mm -hmm. ask good questions but don't be afraid like that's what i found since being here is like i've had a lot of ideas i wrote them down Mm-hmm. I wrote I wrote a 180 day plan, and then I thought, well, what's stopping me from just ticking this one off the box or off my off my list? Nothing. The only thing that's keeping me from trying it is me. So I've just said, well, let me talk to one person about this thing I'd let, really love to happen, and they said that's a great idea. Let's get some more people involved. I'm like, okay, let's do that. But it would never happen if I had just sat here and moaned and grumbled about like why my church isn't doing this. Like, oh, let's just try it, you know, see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say for, for leaders not to assume the worst, you know, to not get discouraged, but don't assume the worst about people's motivation Yeah, and, and imagine a resistance that isn't there. I mean, you're saying like, well, just let's get tried and start it. But I would say, even when you begin to run into resistance to begin then to reflect, have I given people experiences? Have I made my assumptions explicit? Because sometimes when we run into a resistance, what we're really running into is a lack of understanding, an awareness, a knowledge that there's some gap that can be filled that really isn't 
some ideological resistance or, you know, oh, people around here just don't change. It's like, no, they're just missing some information. And if we take the time to draw them in, it can make all the difference. Yeah, you can learn a lot from a conversation. Yeah, that's a great place to, to end here. So we hope you all have learned a lot from this conversation. We had fun. Hope you did too. If you have somehow stumbled across this without uh, subscribing yet, what are you waiting for? This is the EquipCast. You can find us all one word, EquipCast, on every major platform. And we also have a blog with show notes and resources. We'll link to Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage. Uh, real good, great book, which again talks about for leaders the importance of casting vision. You can find the blog on Equip dot archomaha.org. You can also subscribe to the blog there and you'll get notices for releases of the podcast and blog and access to all the show notes. Thanks for being with us. God bless. <laughs>